Well, good to be with you. And, uh, yes, great. You know, I think uh, our brother, the chairman, was making sure that things would go well tonight. He gave me a real good shot of strong Cuban coffee. He said, drink this, brother. And I thought, man, I must have been pretty sleepy on Sunday. So I, I think the elders got together and said, we've got to do something with this guy. Give him strong coffee. And I have to say, you're a really serious Cuban coffee's coffee. This stuff we... Do you know, I grew up in England where you can't believe how bad the coffee was. My mother would bring me a cup of hot milk put a spoonful of instant Nescafe coffee in, stir it up, and call it coffee. But what I got tonight, ah, that was a thing. So, good to be here, and uh, you know what I'm doing, uh, of course, because you were here Sunday, except for Randy, he had a day off, but <laughs> good to see him and everybody tonight. We're talking about uh, two things the Lord does for us. Uh, we talked about the way he restores Peter's case in John 21. Restored by the risen Lord tonight, represented by the ascended Lord, the great event in Acts 1 and the end of Luke's gospel, the ascension. So we're doing the resurrection, ascension, and hey, Sunday morning, ready for the returning Lord. We're going to look at that great parable in Matthew 25, about the wise and foolish bridesmaids. And that's where we're going. And tonight we're right in the middle of the sandwich, the second thing the Lord does for us. And then, of course, the last talk will be on how we need to respond and do things for him. So that's where we're going. Nice to know where we're going. Uh, you know, when Christopher Columbus came to this country, when he set out, he didn't know where he was going. When he got there, he didn't know where he was. And when he got home, he didn't know where he'd be. <laughs> That's what some preachers do. And I want you to know where we're going. And I hope when I leave, you'll know where we've been. And tonight it's the ascension. And I want to tell you, the ascension is a neglected but vital part of the gospel message. This is the big post-resurrection event, Christ's ascension. And somehow it gets neglected, I guess. It's a momentous event, but it's eclipsed by Easter. And understandably, you know, you look at your hymn book and there's lots of sections on the resurrection, but no special section in many hymn books on the ascension. And of course I understand this because a resurrection is a foundational fact on which our faith is built. And we reminded ourselves about that on Sunday, how important is a resurrection. As Paul wrote, as he did in 1 Corinthians 15:7, if Christ be not raised, then our preaching is in vain. I think in the message version of 1 Corinthians 15, it says, Paul said, it's, if Christ isn't raised, all you believe is smoke and mirrors. No foundation. So it is important. In fact, Romans 1:4 says that Christ was declared to be the Son of God with power. How? by the resurrection from the dead. So, everything, of course, depends on the foundation of the resurrection. <clears throat> but i got to tell you tonight, the, the empty tomb, great though it is, that's where we were Sunday, it's only half of a wondrous story, a wonderful happy ending. And so, that's why Paul, as you read on in 1 Corinthians 15, pointed out that 
The resurrection was only the first fruits, the beginning of the coming harvest. This is not the end of the story, because as you read the end of the Gospels, and then you get into Acts 1, you realize that the resurrection and ascension go together. They go together because they need both there to validate everything that Christ claimed, and of course all that he accomplished. Especially his claim to be divine. Jesus is God, manifest in flesh. Uh, you see, and, 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 and you need both these events because they're God's acknowledgement that Christ's activity on earth, his life and his death, that was his, God the Father's activity too. Sometimes we cannot separate the Trinity, but of course Father, Son and Holy Spirit work together. And, and, and it's, a, it's a Father's acknowledgement that this is our activity so we put these together and together the, the bodily resurrection of Jesus the literal bodily resurrection and his actual ascension they're God's pledge of many things but particularly I want to talk about how it affects us it's God's pledge we too will be raised raised to what? life and glory in heaven like Christ and of course it's, it's, it's the pledge that Christ will yet restore and rule all creation. You know, sometimes we forget the end of the story. And it's very important when, we, when we're reviewing our faith, Christ will restore and rule. And that's a, that, that's a basic truth. And, and it's these two events that, that go together. And remember, they were both seen and witnessed by humans on earth. We're not talking about some fable here. I mean, people like us stood and saw the risen Christ and they watched him ascend. And that, of course, is the beginning of a whole new chapter in God's plan, ultimately to heal all creation and reclaim it for his own liberating rule. It's important to put it together. You know, I, I love happy endings. I have a lot of trouble reading some fiction. Occasionally I read fiction on vacation. Ending. So I'm one of those fellows that ruins the story by looking at the end, see how it panned out. I love it when it panned out well, especially of romance. Isn't it great when they all get together? Well, happy endings are great. Well, the complete account of the gospel story comes at the end of the gospels and the beginning of Acts. And the final act of the gospel accounts is... It's not the resurrection. The final account, the real happy ending is the ascension. So let's not neglect this because the Gospels end and Acts begins with the Lord's departure, his ascension to a place. Where did he go? We're going to talk about that. To a place he promised we would go to. And it was actually an event that Christ anticipated very eagerly. Uh, the Lord always told the disciples what was going on. Often they didn't realize it, but John 16, he anticipated his ascension. And he said to his followers, you get ready for this because, well, I'm going to the Father. And you won't be able to see me anymore. And that's a problem, of course, for many people, the fact that God's invisible. Sometimes I talk about that. It's not my focus tonight, but... But the ascension, it's a problem event for materialists because they only believe what they can see, but it's an important event because it affirms in a very concrete way that the 
the body of the Lord Jesus, well, something happened to it. And that's what we've got to talk about. You see, in going to the Father, what happened? Well, Christ's body, which had been seen and touched, left this universe of space and time, and it went into the presence of God the Father. One of my favorite Christian authors who had a profound effect on me as a young undergraduate was C.S. Lewis. And one of the things he wrote about this was, a phantom can't just fade away. I mean, sorry, a phantom can just fade away, but an objective entity, it must go somewhere. Something must happen to it. You see, invisible doesn't mean non-existent. I did promise somebody, I don't blow things up anymore. They still call me Dr. Boom down at Boulevard. But uh, I said to Jane, and she warned me not to do this, uh, Jane's still here? Oh, I thought she, she's hiding me. I Calvin. I thought she'd gone already. Nobody can see a thing when Calvin sits up. I, I said to Jane, I'm going to take one last crack at burning down Bible Truth Chapel. She said, don't you dare. But I want you to see this piece of paper. You can observe it, right? It's there. It's a real entity. Now, I'm going to do something to it that only a chemist could do. It's gone. It's gone. Hold it doesn't exist a magician could make it disappear but hey I've transformed it now those molecules haven't gone you can't you know enough science to know you can't create or destroy matter but it's a problem for materials if you can't see it it can't be there and as a physical scientist of course I was always a bit troubled uh, by some of those movie pictures of the Ascension because they encouraged us to imagine that the Ascension was like a, a journey like a space shuttle might take. Um, well, what does Scripture say? It says, well, he ascended into heaven and seated at the right hand of the Father. It's not making a geographical statement, it's making a theological statement. And you need to ask, well, where did the Lord go to? Where is he now? I want you to realize, you know, I thought about this because I talked to a lot of physicists and people who only believe what they can see. We shouldn't think of the ascension spatially like a journey through space from one location to another and try to locate heaven somewhere in the universe. You know, the scriptures, he was taken up before their eyes, so this isn't an imaginary event. Taken up, they saw it. And a cloud received him from their sight. Uh, but we shouldn't try to locate where he went within our space-time universe, as if this was like a, a spaceship journey. <clears throat> Remember, 1 Kings 8:27 makes a very state, very fundamental statement that the heaven <clears throat> of heavens can't contain God. <clears throat> so those people, and including the uh, uh, the legend is that Yuri Gagarin, the first Russian, first man to go in space, said, well, I didn't see God. Uh, now, these days, we get these wonderful pictures from the Hubble telescope. Uh, mysterious, wonderful pictures. But, you see, the trips of the Lord Jesus, the incarnation and the ascension, they're actually transitions from the material universe of space and time 
from some other dimension outside space and time. And I say this because remember, space and time didn't exist before the universe popped into it, being at God's command. When I was an undergraduate, people thought the universe was infinitely old. But now we know, no, it, it came into existence at a point in time. Of course, as Christians, we know that's when God spoke. But, but we have to use language like he ascended because we are creatures of space and time. We can't even imagine another dimension. Physicists can, some scientists do calculations on it, but we can't think without the help of language like ascended because we're creatures of three dimensions. So we do tend to think, well, I wonder where Christ went to. Where's heaven? Heaven is another dimension of reality. Can't show you pictures. But you see, the fact that the ascension is difficult to us to understand physically and geographically in no way diminishes its theological importance and significance because the ascension, uh, the transfer of Jesus, his actual body, to another dimension, it informs so many aspects of what we believe. And so when you come back to the Bible, instead of the speculations of science, and say, well, where is Christ now and what he's doing? We get some very clear answers. Theologically, we, we say, well, Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands. Don't think materially. Don't think this is a spot like, like with, with material boundaries. But it's a heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. And that's incredibly encouraging. That's why I said we're represented by the ascended Lord, heaven itself for us. Underline that. Because scripture assures us that where Christ is, it's described, Luke 22, 69, is seated at the right hand of the Father. And all through scripture becomes very clear. Look, God raised Christ from the dead. That's the foundational fact of the faith. And seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Now this doesn't mean that it's kind of so mystical that it's not real. Because the ascension, like the resurrection, is eyewitness stuff. I mean, they say seeing is believing. Well, in many ways it is, although there's many invisible things that are real including God who is a spirit but, but we do have eyewitness accounts that's what Acts 1 is all about remember in Acts 1 they said I don't have Acts 1 on the screen but they, they said this same Jesus the same Jesus shall so come in like manner as you see him go so this was an observed event and of course as you read through the Bible there are, there are Visions of the ascension and exaltation, because like the resurrection, it does have eyewitnesses. Two great examples that you might think about briefly. Who sort of ascended Christ? Well, two of the visions of the ascended Christ recorded in Scripture are very interesting. Stephen, the first martyr, stoned in Acts 7, very important case and John on the Isle of Patmos at the end of his life. And you know these stories, I haven't time to go into any detail, but as Stephen uh, confronting the Sanhedrin and, and Paul getting incensed and all that developed to the point that he was stoned. Uh, and at that point, when Stephen was dying in Acts 7, at the end of this 
incredible account of the first martyr we read but Stephen full of the Holy Spirit and it's the Spirit of course that reveals his truth he looked up to heaven that's the only way we can look uh, but what he saw and this was special revelation of course was the glory of God what a privilege and Jesus wow, what's this standing at the right hand of God I thought he was sitting at the right hand of God unusual case and theologians and commentaries, you know, they say, well, it could be welcoming, it could be um, that he's just trying to judge the Sanhedrin. But he said, look, I see, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. <coughs> My own view is that Stephen dies seeing Christ at God's right hand. Because and that whatever you think about standing or sitting, the place is the place of all power, all authority, all majesty. That's where Christ is. He's in the seat of power. He's in control. He's a majestic Lord. But I think Christ standing is just a sign of his welcome for Stephen and his readiness to be his advocate. Because the Bible teaches the ascended Lord represents us. And Peter dying saw that. Uh, Stephen, rather, Peter was crucified a lot later. Stephen saw that. And of course, John on Patmos, now he's a lonely man at the end of his life, and he's sitting on the Lord's Day, you can imagine all John's thinking about. And he sees Christ at God's right hand. Not in the same way, it's an extraordinary description of the ascended Christ in the book of Revelation. It was given to the Apostle John. He had a vision of Christ on the Lord's Day because he was in the Spirit. Notice, every time there was a vision of the ascended Christ, it's in the Spirit. And he heard a voice, and he turned to see the voice. And the Bible says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking. Always emphasize his visual. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands, someone like a son of man. I read that and I thought, to what extent does John's vision, his picture, his description of Jesus, show us what Jesus is really like now? Well, you've got to say this is a vision. And a vision can tell us a lot about the Lord Jesus. It's a very informative vision, but, but it's still a vision. Uh, this is a, a strange artistic rendition of what's described, but, but you see, John didn't see Christ directly. He said, in the midst of the seven lampstands, there was someone like a son of man. And we can all have our images there, uh, but we know the truth is, at that moment, Jesus himself was at the right hand of God. He didn't literally leave the throne, go to Patmos, and actually manifest himself in person and just talk to John face to face. So, so Jesus at the right hand of God, as, as the Bible says is, he doesn't look like the figure in the vision. This was a special vision. And I think if God permitted any of us to see Jesus as he is now, and we will see him one day, of course, he would look like he did to the disciples after his resurrection. Because, you see, at the ascension... This is just, these are pictures, of course, but, but at the ascension, they actually saw the same person that they'd known for the previous three years. 
And now its body was glorified, it was transformed. We know the resurrected Lord did walk into the room. This is what convinced Thomas. He didn't even need to touch the wounds. Uh, and, but it, it was still the same Lord that they touched and they ate with. And we talked about that in John, John 21 on Sunday. Uh, this is what we read in Acts chapter 1 about the same Jesus going up and coming down. And of course, Hebrews backs that up. He says, we see Jesus, but of course now crowned with glory and honor. So, so what I'm saying is Jesus, the one seated in heaven at God's right hand, he's the God-man. He's the word made flesh. He's human. God and man, we know that happened at the incarnation. It's a result of the incarnation. So we need to be clear. There really is a resurrected Lord in the presence of the Father and he's our advocate. Incredibly important truth. So what do we have now? Let's be clear what we have. And scripture says what we have and what we don't have. And it's wonderful. In Hebrews it's developed in detail. Hebrews 8.1 says, what we do have such a high priest who is sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. So the standing for, for Stephen's a special case. What we have is a high priest who is in the presence of, of the Father at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. But what we don't have, and this is wonderful, Hebrews 4.15 says, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. So we have one that's there, but we don't have one that's distant and abstract. You see, the real Jesus in heaven, he's the one that stands between us and God the Father Almighty, and he's the one that knows our faults and our feelings of guilt and understands Dave Humphreys the sinner, and he knows all the things that I wouldn't want anyone else to know in case they rejected you. I would, there's a lot I wouldn't want you guys to know. You wouldn't listen to my preaching, but, but, you know, the Lord knows, and that's important. I, I hinted at about on Sunday, because that reality, that there's a man in heaven interceding for us, that's, that, that's more comforting than a vision, or a, a, a rich though that vision was in telling us much about Jesus, uh, and it was an incredible vision. It made John drop like a dead man. But, but what we really have in Scripture overall is, is the truth that just as he stooped from heaven to earth was such that he remained true God. Jesus was always God. That's important theology. So in the exaltation from earth to heaven, he remained a true man. This is very important, you see, because we have a glorified Lord but we have a Lord who understands, a Lord who, sin apart, went through all the experiences that trouble us. And so, and even in the vision, you know, this, this ascended Lord who so overwhelmed John that he just dropped like a dead man, you know what he does in the vision? It's just beautiful. He reaches out to touch John. In the vision he said, gently, he said, don't be afraid. This is what we have. Lord, he says, don't be afraid. This is what we have, a Lord who understands us. They're encouraging words from our ascended Lord. So I don't want you to think of all this stuff as, oh, Jesus is gone, and we're, we've lost him, we don't understand. No, we have a Lord 
who waits for us, who understands us, who pleads for us, who reaches out to us, who says, don't be afraid. The same Lord said, come to me if you're weary. That's the Lord we have. And I want you to understand that as we get to talk about what's the real meat of the talk tonight, and that's the importance of the ascension. And I want to deal with this in some detail because the ascension, which led to the coronation of Christ, assures us of a lot of stuff, but in particular it assures us there's a connection between us and God, and that connection is absolutely secure. Because the ascension shows Christ's work is complete, it's effective, it's approved by God the Father. It tells us absolutely clearly that God is eternally committed to his creation and to humanity. There's a man in heaven. And this has enormous implications. And I want to deal with four of them only tonight. Four theological implications of Christ's ascension. And I'll summarize what we're going to talk about. Of course it led to the coronation of Christ. We've got to talk about how Christ is a king. But it implies, and this is very important tonight, the, the representation of humanity, it implies the exaltation of humanity. And more than that, Jesus made it clear that it was important that he ascended because that's enabled the Spirit to be given. And the Holy Spirit is so central to our victorious Christian life. And of course, it was the ascension that left us with a big job to do. And I want to talk about all those. The last thing Jesus asked us to do. These are the four things that are implications of more, but these are the four we're going to deal with tonight. So let's get into them. The ascension is the coronation and enthronement of Christ. Never forget, the ascension is important because it's about Jesus being recognized as number one in God's great scheme of things. And this days of pluralism and sincerity is all that matters and maybe this religion has some merit and all that stuff. It's so important. We must believe and we dare not believe anything other than Christ is the center of God's purposes we must give our worship and our allegiance to nothing or no one except Christ, because he's the king. And, and scripture struggles to get across to us. How far does scripture go in describing the ascension of Christ? I mean, Paul strains to do this. He said, well, it's far above all. Um, in Ephesians, he began to write about this, and he said, well, look, he said, Christ is... He's exalted far above all rule and authority and power and dimensions. It's, it's far above all heavens. You can feel him struggling to get this across. It's far above Ephesians 1.21, above all rule, all authority, all power, all dominion, every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but the one to come. You get it? He's struggling. It's, this is eternal. This is, this is so big. And you read these scriptures, there's no wiggle room here, there's no ambiguity, you can't say, I don't understand that verse. I mean, you can't miss it. It's above everything. It's number one in every sense. And the scripture, that's why, we, remember that lovely hymn, we read, the head that once was crowned with thorns is crowned with glory now. And this came in at our breaking of bread. 
You see, because the ascension was the basic activity that was an answer to the Lord's prayer. You remember John 17? When the Lord's wrapping things up and he said, I've brought your glory on the earth, just talking to his Father. I've completed the work you gave me to do. And what did he want? His prayer was, now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. This is an important verse. It reminds us, before there was space and time, before there was anything, there was Father and Son and Holy Spirit in unity, in glory. And he wanted that and prayed for it. And of course it was an ascension that led to the coronation and ultimate triumph of Christ. And the language of scripture is language of victory. Hebrews 1.13 Sit on my right hand when? Until your enemies are your footstool. We don't see that fully realized yet. But, but remember what the right hand is. What does it mean? Well it's a place of authority. It, it's the place where Christ exercises all authority. Because we tend to think geographically, we te- tend to think like kids. In fact, I'm left-handed. i got to tell you, when I was a kid, some misguided Sunday school teacher was trying to encourage me because I was going to a school where they were making me right with my right-handed. And I kept saying, I'm, I'm left-handed. And he said, oh, don't worry, God's left-handed. I said, God's left-handed? Oh, that's great. I said, I'm sure God's left-handed. Well, he said, uh, Jesus is sitting on his right hand. <laughs> and I always thought of, I thought of God so physically, I thought of uh, God being left-handed because Jesus is, you know, it's a funny thing, but we can be like kids thinking about God, can't we? But, but, you see, you know what it means. But anyway, it was, it helped me to stay secure in being left-handed. But, but it's in that place of enthronement, the ascended Lord is able to talk victory. I love, I love the revelation because it's about the happy ending. And he says, I've overcome. I've overcome. And I'm set down with the Father on his throne. Keeps coming time and time again. It, it, all the way through, it's, the crown he wears is a victor's crown. Of the most encouraging thing to realize these are troubled days. I mean, ISIS and all the evil in the world today. What is. The, people say to me, What's the world coming to? That's a great witnessing thing, by the way. If people say to you, What the world's coming to? Say, I know. Have you got a crystal ball or something? But we do know. Because the Bible tells us. So we should be ready to tell them what the world's coming to. And, and what the world's coming to is, of course, the victory of Christ. Uh, you see, we got to we we worry about you know political things and all that. But the real governance of the universe is in the scarred hands of the Lord Jesus, our Savior. And and, and uh, you got to realize all those people who try to dominate the earth, let alone the universe, he's above all that. Uh, and it's such a comforting truth. You see, he's proof. You know how Jesus uses his power? Power is so abused by every human, but he uses his power to show his love. That's what he did. And it's such an important truth because it means that all those evil destructive forces that oppose justice and goodness, they have their days numbered. In the end, it's the law of love that will prevail. 
today it's a lot of violence. I mean, we have an incredible effort to try to destroy ISIS, which is violence and evil. Uh, but we know that the end of the story, uh, and it's in the hands of the Lord, whose hands will pierce for us. Uh, so we've got to recognize, meanwhile, while we wait for this all to develop, the supremacy of Christ as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But if you acknowledge that, it can lead to trouble. Jesus said it would. He warned us it'll get worse. Because the evil one, he doesn't like it when you give your total allegiance to Christ. And if you have persecution and difficulty, you will have. Jesus said, in fact, if you live a godly life, you will be persecuted. That's what worries me, because I'm not very persecuted. Because the evil powers don't like it when we give total allegiance to Christ the King. But you see, the ascension is more than Christ being... Lord and King, it actually, and this is another thing we need to talk about, it implies the exaltation of humanity. You see, one of the wonderful things about the Incarnation is that when Jesus took a human body, he became something that made him able to be a representative for us. And it's, it's actually Christ, the one who was human, that represents us in heaven. And this means that a lot of things we can say about him can become true of us. And so, when you read the Bible, you realize the ascension includes wonderful truth, the exaltation of believers. Look at this, Ephesians 4. Christ raised, sorry, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. I mean, when you're doing your Bible reading, you should stop and go, Wow! I mean, don't just cross over that verse. He's raised us up with Christ in the heavenly realms. These are astounding truths. You see, I know it was a resurrection that made us alive in Christ, but it's the ascension, through the ascension, that will be raised up with Christ. And this, this means Christ's vindication is our vindication. His exaltation is our exaltation. And it, and, and, it, and it just changes our whole view of humanity. I mean, the, the part of the Bible that teaches what's special about humans is Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And we sometimes forget that, that, that the central teaching of the Bible is as far as humanity is concerned, we're spiritual beings. We're made in God's image. We're made for eternity. That's how we were made, unique and special. And, and, and I'm a big uh, admirer of animal rights people, and they do a great job. I inherited a dog uh, when Jane's daughter died, and I'm, I'm getting to love Bosco. He's a great guy. <laughs> what a dog. But it's not a spiritual being made in God's image. Uh, I love this cartoon that uh, he says, Mr. Carver's out, this is his best friend speaking. <laughs> dog may, you may feel dogs can be man's best friend, and some, I know a lonely person who's dying to have a dog to get some affection, and, and, and I'm surprised how, how, how much we're missing Bosco. So I'm not downplaying animal rights or the, or the, the value of animals, but you see, God breathed. Making, let's get rid of that. We were made to reflect God's glory. Being God breathed, as Genesis said, 
humans became living souls. This is totally different, made for eternity. I'm not getting into the debate about whether the gods, uh, dogs are in heaven. All I can say is what Billy Graham said when his grandson asked that. He said, son, grandson, if it's essential to your happiness, it will be there. That was a good answer if the kids had. If it's essential to your happiness, it will be there. But humans, they reflect God's glory. They're, they're made in God's image. And the clenching truth that assures us of human dignity is the ascension. Because in the ascension, human nature has now been taken into the realm of God. It's been taken into the very presence of God, onto the very throne of God. And we need to think more about the, the wondrous truth that one like us, in every respect but sin, one who's totally acquainted through experience with our difficulties and struggles and pains, is now on the throne of heaven. And he's not just sitting there on the throne, he's acting as our representative. Scripture's clear about this. And because he's our representative and he's on the throne of heaven, that's what Paul meant. We too, in a sense, are sitting in heavenly places and there's no higher place we can aspire to be. And it's not just doctrine. That's a great doctrine to understand, but it has ethical and practical implications. And I always think, you know, that's what we've got to do with Scripture, apply it to life. Because the more exalted and dignified humanity is seen, the more it matters how every member of the human species is treated. So, listen folks, any insult to the humanity of any person, it's an insult to the nature which God has eternally taken on himself. And this affects... You know, it affects life. It, it frames our attitude to racism. There's no place for racism when you understand humans made in the image of God, that, that God made us all in His image, and the Gospels for everybody. It's become an issue in, in North America. I know that. Abortion. Euthanasia. We're, we're moving in Canada to relaxing the laws about terminating life. Pornography, the debating of humans. These big issues today, abortion, racism, euthanasia, pornography, listen, they're settled if you understand about the humanity of Christ and all I'm talking about because any treating of any human being as expendable or an object for gratification, well, it's blasphemy against the human nature that God has taken into heaven itself. You see, because the ascension is, is about one who is fully human. And, and it's got to change your attitude when you're talking about the rights of the unborn or the terminally ill or how you're going to treat the real, frail, least developed human life. What are you going to do it with dignity and love? You're going to be different from any, any, any legal discussion on this. Because it's the ascension that changes all our goals and aspirations in life. And it's so important to think about the, those practical implications of that. But time flies. Listen, I want to get more practical again and uh, just go back to Scripture in the Gospels. One of the questions that always bothered me was... Why the sorrowing disciples, and you know about their bewilderment, we talked about it Sunday, were 
filled with joy when Jesus left them. I mean, usually when somebody is so important in your life goes, you're, you're sad. Even when one of your family members leaves to, uh, uh, and goes a long way away, you're filled with joy. Well, they came to understand, and Jesus explained it so clearly in John, why he was going. He said clearly, I'm going to prepare a place for you. If this person said, I'm leaving to get a place ready for you, sounded pretty good. They understood where he was going. No mystery. John 16, um, 5, 28. I leave you to go to the Father. So I'm going to get a place for you. I'm going to leave you to go to the Father. And what's he going to be doing? Well, of course he represents us, but John 16 sounds very important. Sending the Holy Spirit. And that's the thing I want to talk about. Number three, quickly. It was the ascension that enabled the Spirit to be given. You need to think about the role of the Holy Spirit throughout the Bible because the role of the Holy Spirit enlarges as you go through Scripture. Of course, the Spirit had an active role in creation. Right from Genesis 1, the Spirit of God moved on the face of the waters and so forth. But it was a transient role in the Old Testament. Right from Genesis 1-2, we read about special endowments. You know, the famous cases like Samson. Samson, when he said in Judges 16-28, Oh God, please strengthen me once more. And the Spirit descends, and there was a, mo- a, a, a moment of strength. But it wasn't until the prophet Joel, you remember the second chapter of Joel, he promised that there will be a day when the Spirit will be poured out on all flesh. And that event, of course, will enable you to understand God fully. And you know that's all what Pentecost is about. But before the ascension, the Spirit of God on earth was really centered around the Lord Jesus. When Christ was on earth, the Spirit played a special role focused on Him. So from the moment of conception right to the ascension, the Spirit was fully involved in Christ. Now, Christ is gone in terms of bodily presence. So in John 16, He spoke about the time when the Spirit would come, I'll go, but the Spirit would come to you disciples as well. And He explained when this was happening. He said, when he's talking about the coming of the Spirit to his disciples and followers he predicted in John 16 that it will happen but he says the Spirit will only come after and as a result of my ascension he said in John 16 7 I tell you the truth it's for your good that I'm going away because unless I go away the counselor will not come to you but if I go I'll send him to you And what a difference that made. Wow. The ascension and the coming of the Spirit changed everything. That's why doubt changed to joy. No more hesitation. Joy and boldness. That's what's seen after Pentecost. That's what Acts talks about. And Peter made it clear in Acts. This is Joel 2.28 realized. It's happened. And the coming of the Spirit after the ascension it left us with new and important responsibilities and this is my last point you see with Jesus no longer physically present God's primary means of working in his world was through us by the Holy Spirit never get away from that and it was the ascension not only that sent the Spirit but gave you and I new responsibilities 
You see, just before he went, Jesus gave a final charge to the disciples. You know, Matthew 28, he made that all-inclusive, uncompromising claim. He said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now, of course, an astounding claim like that needs the resurrection and the ascension to make it credible. But it's important to note that his claim to have all authority, it came after his suffering and death on the cross. And I want to go back to the point I mentioned earlier. You see, it's only in the wounded hands of the one who voluntarily gave up power and authority that it can be safely placed. Power and authority is corrupted by humans. But the Lord Jesus made himself of no reputation. He voluntarily gave up power and authority. Those are the hands to put it in. And so, that's where the power lies. But Christ, the powerful Lord, gave us a job to do. And he follows his claims of all authority with a clear command. This is what he said, Matthew 28, the very last thing. He said, look, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore you go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them everything I have commanded you, and I am with you always to the end of the age. Astounding stuff. This is a whole mandate. Don't forget the baptism, by the way. We don't seem to talk about it like we used to. That's the mandate, the whole thing. The key job is placed now in our hands. Yes, the governance of the universe in the Lord's hands. But the challenging, important job with a clear job description is offered to you and to me to go to all nations and give them what I've taught. That's why missionary work is so important. He said, go to all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. We have to take a global view. It's so encouraging here in South Florida that you keep the missionary study class going, that, that you have events that have a global perspective. And it's so encouraging. You see, he was leaving them. He was going, but he said, look, I'm with you. I'm with you always. And the Holy Spirit is his means of keeping that promise. And the Holy Spirit, a distinct divine person in the Godhead, he's the key to God's purposes being accomplished in our lives and in our world. And it's not ambiguous. It's totally inclusive. It's unambiguous. He has all authority. It's all nations. It's everything he commanded. And it's always. All, all, all and always. And this is it. And you'll be very happy. I'm going to finish on time. What was last... Christ's last act on earth. There's a, a baby deciding it's about time you finish now, never mind that. What was it? Well, oh, this is great. Isn't it wonderful? He led them out as far as Bethany. And he lifted up his hands. These are the pierced hands that were stretched on the cross. And he blessed them. And it came to pass while he blessed them, he was parted from them and carried up to heaven. The last act of the Lord was to lift pierced hands in blessing. And that's why the joy came. You know how the Gospel of Luke finishes? They worshipped him. And they returned with great joy. And they continually praised God. I hope the Ascension Review we've done tonight has got you to rejoice. I mean, it was his coronation. <clears throat> He's now enthroned. 
He now reigns. And his reign will one day be made visible to everybody. Every eye shall see him. Paul wrote in Romans 14, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Folks, that's why we got to look up. Paul had it summarized so well in Colossians 3. Seek those things that are above where Christ sits on the right hand of God because your life, your real life, you forget this, we're so busy on it, your real life is hidden with Christ in God. Such a blessing. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. It won't pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Folks, let's rejoice in that. Those arms that were lifted on the cross were outstretched in blessing, but he gave us a job to do, and we need to do it. This is the bottom line. He is Lord. He is risen from the dead, and he is Lord. Just think about that as we uh, give a little benediction. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power, which is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. God bless you as you go. Sunday, ready for the returning Lord. He's not only risen, not only ascended, but he is coming. We've got to be ready. May God help us as we prepare for that. Thank you so much.